Good morning, church family. I'm Aisha. Today we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 22. We're starting at verse 39 and going all the way to verse 53. It's on page 1057 in the Blue Bibles. Also follow along on the screen behind me. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, in anguish like this, maybe, sorry. She was asleep. Okay. Okay, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant, the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered him, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who came, had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Aisha and Priya. (laughs) Um, You know what you're in for when the story is set on a dark and stormy night, don't you? Uh, You don't generally get a happy story that starts that way. Um, it's always a scary one, so if you want to tell a good scary story on your next camping trip, remember that. as a dark and stormy night. Uh, when I was growing up, I vividly remember uh, waking up one night to the sound of our little dog Maggie yapping away, um, but it was different to the other nights when that happened. Um, that night there were footsteps in the house, lights flicking on. Uh, next thing I know, my mum's rushing into my room, like, everything's okay, Jamie, don't worry. Um, and I'm like, oh, well, I am now. Uh, it turns out we'd just been robbed, uh, and my sister actually saw the robbers come into her room uh, before Maggie barked and they ran off. Uh, very unsettling, to say the least. Uh, there's something about night time, isn't there? that emboldens us to try things that we wouldn't have the guts to do in the light of day, uh, like break into houses when everyone's home. Nighttime, uh, when I'm tired, uh, when no one's watching, is often when human beings are at their weakest and the underbelly of human life kind of comes to the fore. That's the kind of night that we find ourselves in in that passage from Luke 22, under the cover of darkness, and we see the worst of humanity. 
And we see how God responds. So point one in your leaflets, sleepy disciples, willing Jesus. As they got together for Passover dinner, Jesus made it clear to his disciples that something big was about to go down. Uh, Things were about to get quite grim for Jesus. But that's why he came, to be the Passover lamb. Can you imagine being there around that table? As the conversation gets heavy, as Jesus talks about a coming betrayal of his body being given up for them and a new covenant between God and people signed in his own blood, the fulfillment of God's promise of a saviour who sets people free by becoming numbered with the criminals. I reckon it would have been pretty hard to process If you were one of the disciples, uh, you would have been used to going for an evening stroll with Jesus on the Mount of Olives to the garden called Gethsemane. But this time, it feels different. This time, Jesus is visibly anxious. And he goes off by himself. Jesus has been talking about his coming death for a while now. And as hard as that has been to believe of the man who can calm a storm with a word, now it seems like he's for real. And so he tells you to pray because temptation is on the line. Jesus said over dinner that Satan was going to sift the disciples like wheat to see what they were made of. And Peter was so confident that he'd stand by Jesus no matter what at the time. But now in the dark of the garden... Watching your Lord on his knees, that confidence is starting to waver already. It's funny how when a big drama hits, you kind of think you'd go into overdrive mode, but sometimes all you want to do is sleep. And that's where we find the disciples there in verse 45. When Jesus rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. It's just all too much for these closest companions of the Messiah. They don't pray. Uh, Maybe deep down, they don't like the idea of God answering a prayer that they wouldn't fall into temptation because that would mean standing by Jesus even to the point of death. It's a low point for the disciples. When the pressure ramps up, you, you see what they're really made of and it's not strong stuff. What's striking as we look at how Luke tells the story is how different Jesus' followers are from Jesus at this point. Jesus stands apart, or rather kneels apart. And really, from here on, the story of Jesus fulfilling the scriptures is the story of the so-called faithful falling away until there's just one. The disciples can't keep their eyes open. But Jesus is totally switched on. Look again at verse 39. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. As usual. If Jesus didn't want to be handed over in this betrayal that he knew very well was being set up for him, all he had to do was not do what he did every night. But he went. He was willing completely willing, 
uh, but not in a kind of sure why not kind of way. Uh, Luke wants us to be convinced that Jesus had his eyes wide open as he went to the cross, including exactly how much that would cost him. And so he shows us Jesus on his knees. Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. It's an incredibly vulnerable moment. God the Son in the flesh, expressing to his Father, if there is a way for me to be spared what is about to happen. It's not like he's decided that you know, he doesn't want to save lost sinners everywhere anymore. But in this moment, we see Jesus grappling with the fact, this is going to cost me everything. Uh, on a smaller scale, uh, it reminds me of when Aisha and I went to birthing classes at the local hospital. Um, so Aisha and I are married, if we're just meeting. Um, that's why I was with her there. Um, <laughs> uh, this is when Aisha was pregnant with Ari, our older, older child, and uh, they started talking about what to expect when labor starts uh, and what happens after that. And suddenly something that we'd always wanted and even prayed for, suddenly the cost of it was right there. And through the fog of my own squeamish response, I saw Aisha and the other mums grappling with that. On one level, it was like, get me out of here. But on another, I am in this. I'd do anything. Why do mums go through it with all its variously agonizing and complicated forms? Well, one of the things, many things I admire about my wife is how much she loves our kids and how much that love has already cost her. When he was faced with the cost of the sins of the world, Jesus prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He submitted himself, not stoically, but genuinely and willingly to his father's plan. Because even when the cost was right there in front of him, he is in this with his father. And so Jesus did what no human being has ever done. He succeeds where his disciples and all mankind fails because in the moment of temptation, he says, your will be done. He believes that his father's word is good even when it costs him everything. Back in Luke 4, Satan offered Jesus a way to glory without suffering he said, bow down to me now and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. He even quoted from the Bible. Doesn't Psalm 91 say that God will send angels to protect his chosen one? And it was all a little bit Garden of Eden-esque. You know how the snake tempted Adam and Eve to eat the fruit, to, to believe that God was trying to cheat them out of a better life? But where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus stood up to Satan and here in another garden, in the dead of night, Jesus deals the devil a death blow. He feels the horror of what's coming and he prays, not my will, but yours be done. 
And it's at that moment that God really does send an angel to protect his chosen one, not to spare him from suffering, but to strengthen him for the task ahead. Where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeds. And Adam and Eve really set the pattern for the rest of us, didn't they? In our part of the world, we don't talk about the devil too much, but people do exactly what he wants all the time. Believe that God is trying to cheat us out of a better life. Think that we could do it better if we were running the show ourselves. And so we end up in this world of darkness, with everyone trying to be the God of their own life, no matter what the cost. A world where what's best, what feels best for me tends to win the day, even when that's actually harmful to me, damaging to others, and a slap in the face to the God who made me. But God came in the flesh, in the person of his son, to be the man that Adam failed to be, to be the human we all fail to be. Our world tells us that submission is a sign of weakness. But look at Jesus here in the garden, choosing the hard road because he knows that what his father wants is best. Would you call that weakness? Sleepy disciples willing Jesus. As we sit for a moment in the dark with Jesus, let me point to three implications I think this has for us today. The first one is that sometimes God's way is the hard way. It can be tempting to think that God is there to keep us out of trouble in life. But here is Jesus himself asking for his cup to be removed and his father's good answer is not to pluck him out of the situation but to strengthen him for the task ahead. Sometimes God's way is the way of suffering. The question is, does God have a good reason for that? Second implication is just What a saviour. It's tempting for me as a preacher to take a passage like this and say, Jesus succeeded where we fail, so be more like Jesus. But I want to slow down at this point and say, when you look at Jesus agonising in the garden, you're not just looking at your example, although he is that. What you're looking at first is your saviour. Look at how willingly he went that night, how he stayed for the angry mob, even as he knew full well that his sleepy disciples would completely miss the moment and in the end leave him alone. But he went in to save them, to protect them. He lived the life that they and we could never live as as a human, as our representative and substitute He accomplished the job that we were all made for, to honour and enjoy and obey God as our Father. He did it, and he calls flawed people, like you and me, to come and stand with him and rest in that finished work. Third, fully human. This dark night just calls us to marvel at Jesus' humanity. 
You can't read to this point in Luke's gospel without being convinced that Jesus is God in the flesh. Uh, He forgives sins. He raises the dead. But look at verse 44 again. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Here is our saviour, our representative, fully God and fully human, dripping with sweat. Medical professionals have since observed that when under immense psychological anguish, a person's sweat glands might actually secrete blood. Whether or not that's literally what Luke's describing here, the point is clear, isn't it? Jesus experienced immense human distress. Last week, Matt gave us a challenge as we start this new chapter together at CLG to keep the cross of Jesus absolutely central because that's the heart of everything we're about. It's well worth catching up on the podcast if you missed it. I found it so timely because, I don't know about you, but I find it too easy to think, oh yeah, Jesus died for me on the cross. And just to gloss over the wonder of that fact... And so today, Luke invites us to sit and marvel at one aspect of that cross. God the Son faced it as a human being, and it caused him to tremble. It can be tempting to think, well, of course Jesus died on the cross for me. We've all sinned, but God is loving, and so that's the answer. But this moment reminds us just how much that cost That love cost Jesus everything. In Luke's day, and still today, the idea of God lowering himself to that depth of humiliation was deeply offensive. And people have proposed various solutions to that problem. Like Jesus just seemed to be human, but of course God could never be degraded like that. But this prayer on the Mount of Olives doesn't let us think that. Jesus did sweat and stress, and bleed, and die. Fully God and fully man, he consciously and willingly took on the humiliation and degradation of the cross for you and for me. When humanity gives its worst, God gives his best. Point two, Jesus won't be getting any sleep tonight. Instead, he gets a showcase of humanity's dark side. While he's still speaking in verse 47, the crowd turns up to arrest him, and it's led by an awfully familiar face. Judas was there just a few hours earlier around the table with Jesus, acting like everything was fine. One of the twelve. It's such a sad moment, isn't it? What could be more two-faced than strolling up to Jesus as if to give him a friendly kiss to single him out as the one to arrest? It's amazing the human capacity to live a double life, to convince others and, and maybe even ourselves that everything's okay. Judas acted like one of the disciples, but for a while now he's been looking for a chance to hand Jesus over As he walks up to Jesus with a smile on his face, I can't help but wonder if even in that moment he was hoping that maybe everything was okay between him and Jesus. 
Either way, Jesus sees right through the facade in verse 48. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas, do you realize who you are standing in front of? That friend you've been spending the last few years with? The Son of Man? Uh, Jesus often uses that title for himself in Luke, and it's no accident uh, because it's the title of the judge of the universe described in Daniel 7. Judas, do you have any idea what you're doing? You're selling the judge of the universe who you will stand before at the end of time. Is the bag of silver really worth it? Humanity's underbelly. Why do we do that double life thing? Why do we put ourselves before the ones we really love? How is it even possible for us to choose the petty comforts of life over the Son of Man? The showcase continues in verse 49. After all Jesus has taught them, his disciples still think it's a good idea to attack their enemies and try and get their way by force. I think, though, the showcase reaches its most cringy display in verse 52. Look at who Luke lists off as those who came to get Jesus. The chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders. The ones who knew their Bibles best, the upstanding members of their community. They're the ones who want to see the Son of God dead. And once again, Jesus asked a very exposing question. Am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? I'm just one guy, says Jesus, and I've been teaching in the temple every day. You could have grabbed me at any time you wanted without force. Why didn't you? Well, they didn't have the guts to do it in broad daylight, did they? Not in front of the crowds who loved Jesus. Coming out against the Prince of Peace like he's a dangerous criminal. Could it be that you're overcompensating there a bit, guys? You know, you say he's a troublemaker to get rid of. You're treating him as a dangerous threat. And that's the worst of humanity, isn't it? If anyone had a chance of getting it half right with God, you'd think it would be this group of good religious leaders. But see what they get up to in the cover of darkness. They look like earnest God-botherers, but deep down, they want nothing to do with God. They want his son out of their lives because he threatens them. And he calls them to something far more radical than a life of religious goodness. When humanity gives its worst, God gives his best. Again, did you notice how Jesus stands out from the crowd? First, by what he does in verse 51, he says, No more of this, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. A moment of tenderness on a violent night. Jesus' last miracle before the cross just incidentally popped in. Love your enemies. It wasn't just a nice idea for Jesus. He did it. He touched the face, probably got the blood on his hand, of the high priest's servant. A man dead set on arresting him. And saved him from spending the rest of his life with a debilitating injury. I don't know which is more amazing. The fact that the mob still went ahead with crucifying Jesus after seeing that miraculous display of grace or the fact that Jesus was willing to perform that last kindness knowing that this man wanted to see him dead. 
then listen to what Jesus says before they take him. This is your hour when darkness reigns. The disciples fight back, but the judge of the universe says, no, I'm going to let you have this one. Because unlike anyone else in this passage, Jesus is committed to his father's loving plan. He is in this mission to fulfill the scriptures and be numbered amongst the criminals so that he might become the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus faced the darkness, the power of Satan, the evil that lurks in the underbelly of every human being to bring us the light, the brightness of forgiveness, the dawn of new life. What does God do with the worst of humanity? He gives his very own son who willingly cops the absolute worst, the injustice, the shame, the betrayal, and he takes it to the cross to put it away forever. Because of that reality, Jesus' followers through the centuries have been known for their compassion towards the haters. Even those first disciples who lashed out in this story, once they get what the cross is about, their lives were full of turning the other cheek. We follow a saviour who saw the worst of humanity and who wasn't threatened by it at all. In fact, he responded with kindness. And I don't know about you, but that's a timely challenge for me. I can be pretty quick to feel hard done by, especially when I'm tired, whether it's towards the person who ignores my indicator when I'm on South Road, or perhaps more seriously, the resentment that it's tempting to feel towards the many voices that loudly and unfairly attack Christians and their God. Jesus has seen the absolute worst of me, and trust me, it's much worse than being an inconsiderate driver. And he consciously and willingly went to the cross for my sake. So that frees me to have compassion even for the haters, because that's what I'd be too if it weren't for the cross. So next time I'm feeling hard done by, here's how the conversation needs to go in my head. Jamie... If Jesus were physically sitting next to you in the car, how would he respond to this person? I said before that happy stories don't begin on dark and stormy nights, but that's not quite right, is it? When we do our worst, God gives his best. Jesus faced the darkness to bring us the light, which means point three... Jesus is with us in the darkness. I thought I'd just use this last heading to just flesh out a few of the reasons why this is such a happy story for us. First reason, Jesus is with us in the darkness of our sin. Have you found it searching to sit in this kind of dark night? I have. Jesus chose God's way that night, and that's so impressive because it's so different to my natural instinct. And we can't shake our heads at the disciples or Judas or the leaders for too long because we think of ways that we do the same things, in the dark when no one is watching. Do you know what it's like to put on one face here at church and another one altogether at home or at work? You might be thinking, 
The idea of God forgiving me is nice, but Jamie, if you saw the underbelly of my life, you wouldn't be so sure. Can I just say that Jesus is sure? Uh, Look again at what he prayed in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. I skipped over a detail before, and that is, what is this cup that Jesus is talking about? It's easy enough to get the vibe. He's, He's facing a violent death. That must be it. And that's true, but it goes even deeper, because that image of a cup has a rich history in the Old Testament. Have a listen to Isaiah 51, verse 17. It says, Rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Lots of people have endured terrible executions quite stoically, but only one has ever faced the unfiltered anger and wrath of God. And that explains why Jesus is in such agony as he faces the cross. It's not just the horror of whips and nails. It's that through those very things, Jesus will experience the judgment of God against human sin. He would drink the goblet that makes people stagger down to the very dregs. That's why Jesus is so much more than our example. He did something that we could never do. He drank the cup of God's anger against all human sin. Hatred, greed, Porn, lies, just living for myself. He drank it down until there was nothing left. So whatever it is for you, be sure. Jesus knows the underbelly. Jesus drank the cup of your judgment so that you will never have to touch it. He knew how much that would cost him, but he did it anyway. That's how much God loves you. This is a happy story. Today would be a great day just to say thank you to Jesus for doing that for you, don't you think? Whether it's for the first time really from the heart or the millionth, thank you, Jesus. If you need another reason why this story is such a happy one for us, here it is. Jesus isn't just with us in our sin, but in our disappointments. From Luke's first readers down to today, Christians have felt the pain of being opposed and rejected by authorities, peers, friends, and even family. I know many here have known that sting. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be stabbed in the back. You might not have been outright betrayed or handed over to the powers that be, But do you know what it's like to have loved ones concerned about you, maybe with some pity or even resentment for how being a Christian has shaped your life? If you've been following Jesus for a while, do you know the disappointment of seeing those close to you turn their backs on Jesus? With those very real prospects, it's tempting to wonder whether going in All in for Jesus is wise. The next time you experience that, remember the garden where Jesus saw his friends turn their backs. And remember, 
He's the one we trust. We might be hurt, but we won't be harmed by those disappointments because ultimately our faith isn't in authorities, peers, or even loved ones. It's in Jesus. Final reason that this dark night is really a story of joy. It tells us that Jesus is with us in our struggles. Perhaps more clearly than anywhere else in the Bible, this passage shows us Jesus the man struggling. And while we celebrate that he was triumphant in that struggle, let's not forget that he did struggle for us as one of us. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows the sweat of choosing the better, costlier path. He can help us in our temptations because he's been there. So next time you're feeling pulled in two directions between what you know God would have you do and what part of you would much rather do, remember the garden. Jesus is with us in our temptations. And when we fail, we can pick ourselves up again because our faith isn't in ourselves and our own goodness, but in Jesus, the one who lived the life we never could as our representative and substitute. Jesus is with us in our struggles. You don't need me to tell you that um, there's a whole range of pain in human life. And I want to say, I think the Bible provides the most compelling and satisfying answer to human suffering, but that doesn't mean it gives a tidy explanation for why pain comes when it does. But when I can't intellectually solve the riddle of pain and grief and tragedy, I can always trust God's motives because of the garden. Because the garden tells me that God doesn't just stand far off and say, things are going to get easier, or believe this and you'll feel good all the time. No, God comes right down into the depths with us, onto his knees. So next time you're overwhelmed by the darkness of life in this world, remember the garden. And when you can't find the words to pray, look at Jesus. See how he comes before his father with his raw emotions, how he brings his fear and his dread, and yet how he doesn't let those emotions ultimately call the shots. He brings them to his father and commits them to his good purposes. That's why we can pray today, not my will, but yours be done. We can trust God's motives because when we bring our worst, God has given us his absolutely very best. Let's pray. Father, we've been faced by our own darkness today. Please give us courage to bring our failings to Jesus, our Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for drinking the cup for us, the cup that we deserve to drink. We've seen a glimpse today of how much that cost you. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to face it for us. Please teach all of us to live in wonder of the cross. Teach us compassion. Help us to trust you in the disappointments, temptations, and suffering of human life, knowing that you have gone before us. Amen.